Welcome to season three of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real-life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and maybe even feelings of hopelessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Welcome back. It's July 24th, 2020. Just had to dip my head and look at the calendar and see where we're at. Um... It is July 25th, 2020. It's a Friday and we are back um, able to have great conversations and interview Dr. Sandra Georgescu, who is in Northern California. And uh, I'm here in Reno. So we're a few miles away from each other, uh, neighboring states. And um, the first time that we interviewed you for season one, you dropped this question for folks to consider, which was thinking into the future. If you were to look back at this moment, how do you want to remember yourself and how you responded to this time? And if you could imagine the future and you looking back, then whatever that is that you ideally want to be able to say, you should lean into doing that. The second season, when we interviewed you almost two months ago, it was the the thing that really stayed with me and was heavy was the idea that the mind works in addition. And so to be very mindful and cognizant and intentional about what we're watching, what we're reading, what we're looking at, what we're engaging in during this time, because we can't erase it. And it will definitely sort of chart a, a course or Hansel and Gretel leave some marks about where we want to continue to, to go and be driven by during this time. So it is now six months since the United States really start of, started paying attention to this COVID-19 and eight months since um, the pandemic really began, um, if you consider that this sort of started in November in China. So it has been a minute. Um, It is no longer a moment of how do you want to be during this time? Because so much of this time has already passed. And I'm wondering, what have you been noticing about how people are feeling and thinking and acting during this time? Um, And how have you been feeling and thinking and acting during this time as the... um, as the medical professional who has to hear about all of our worries and concerns and thoughts and fears. Um, Okay, well, first of all, thank you for having me back. And I actually went back and listened to the episodes and what you recalled and what I recalled were different things. (laughs) Oh, well, that's not shocking to me at all. (laughs) But what do you remember then? I don't. So I don't remember what the difference is, but I do want to, I remember that it was different than what you, which is actually quite on the same page. So Irving Yalom, who is an existential group guru uh, out of Stanford, actually, um, wrote a book with a patient called A Twice Told Therapy. And it's basically that, like his recount versus her recount of what they each remember from their therapy process. And well, the the moral of the story is how different of a narrative we each come away from. 
with what? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. A uh-huh. therapist wrote a book with their patient about their differing perspectives in their time together. Can right. we rewind and just because now I'm just fascinated about this for a second? Why would you do that? What was so what was so um, captivating or interesting or compelling about their sessions that you would even want to write about that? I, I think there's something interesting in there. I thought it was interesting at the time when I read it, like you know, a hundred years ago, um, about how two people can share a space and a conversation and a pretty intimate relationship and take away two completely self-relevant things out of it. Especially when it's only two people and you're really only talking about one of you. Right. You know, like my, my sister and I have these conversations all the time about we're about four and a half, five years apart and what different experiences we've had either because of birth order or, um, you know, the years in which we were born, what was going on with our parents at that particular moment at different times where we lived. She lived in a different house and then we moved when I was born. So I get that. And, and of course, we weren't talking about just one of us, but it is okay. You've got it. it it's quite, it's quite fascinating that talking Talking about the patient, both the patient and the therapist would walk away with completely different things. Okay, so why? How does that happen? I think we remembered the stuff that's relevant to us, right? And so he probably remembers the stuff that he was trying to do on purpose and that he had given a lot of thought to, and she remembers the side effect or the, the effect of that that was relevant to her. And, I, and actually, I think we're all going to come out of this pandemic with our own story <laughs> relative to us, which is right. what you're asking. And it's fascinating to see that, you know, there's a, there's a meme going around that um, we're all in the same soup and all of that. Like, yeah, we're all in the same, like, shit show, mm-hmm. but we all got different boats. So like that, this is one of the things that I will remember about um, the pandemic. About how different everybody's takeaway and experience has been, even though we're all experiencing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think one of the first moments where I realized how unique people's experience would be during this time, as we started to notice clock track and take stock at exactly all the other systemic ways in which we were experiencing life differently that then lent itself to influencing the ability to live or not live through this moment, right? Like, are you black, therefore, you know, uh, born into a, an oppressed, stratified, you know, social society where where you get to live, the job you get to have, the medical insurance you have, the access to medical care, on and on, will affect then, do you have asthma now? Not for any other reason, but because of the neighborhood you're allowed and afforded to live in and how close and in proximity that is to toxic chemicals and factories um, that by design are near neighborhoods where folks can't really afford to be further away from them, right? And then people's um, particular jobs 
and whether or not they were essential or not, um, and schools and whether or not they were private and therefore really needed to protect their students or public and really needed the funding um, to stay afloat, right? And on and on. And what keeps surfacing for many is a noticing based on race and based on class, the differences in which we are allowed to experience this moment. And then recently, just today and this week, we have such high numbers in the states of California, Houston, and Florida, that in Houston in particular, there are these councils now being set up to determine a sort of rubric to then figure out which patient is then therefore most likely to survive COVID-19. Therefore, that patient gets all the attention, all the medical equipment and all the medicine because we have less than what we need, right? So in a moment of abundance, everyone gets to, you know, get their shots, their shot at living. But when you're in a moment of scarcity by design, you know, capitalism needs scarcity. So if by scarcity, all of a sudden we have to pick and choose who is deserving. And that's then when you really get to see these sort of differences. And therefore our, our experiences will be different because our experiences were different already before this moment. Um, so that totally makes sense. Is there anything that we should do about this? Use with this? Will this will this give us anything positive? Could this inform anything beyond wanting to make policy changes that are more equitable and inclusive and accessible? And it's a great question. I, I have no I don't know. I, I think the one thing that if we can pull and always remember is to contextualize whatever your story ends up being. Right. So, so the thing that I will remember going forward to me that was more relevant than the pandemic was Black Life, uh, Black Lives Matter. More important than the pandemic. To me, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think the pandemic set the context for everything that we were tolerating to no longer be tolerated, tolerable. Um. And to remember when we look back in the future that this happened in the middle of a pandemic and somehow maybe it wouldn't have happened had we not had the pandemic. Well, you know what's interesting is that Black Lives Matter as a movement, as um, particular historic moments began before the pandemic. And so it's interesting that even myself fall into framing this and contextualizing this in a way where I say the pandemic happened and then the political uprising began as if that is actually how it happened versus there was a political uprising that began many years ago had its sort of, you know, 2.0 resurgence via Black Lives Matter. And it began around six years ago. And during the pandemic, it really gained a new momentum and energy and focus because the pandemic really shined such a bright light on how much black and brown lives don't matter that you couldn't but feel compelled to definitely take a side if you hadn't in the six years prior. Yeah. 
right? Like, so I think there's a, there's also a difference with how we, how we really look at what began sort of the, the chicken and the egg of this particular moment. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks across the country still protesting daily, uh-huh. right? Yep. And, and in Portland, we have 55 nowadays of ongoing protests where it's not just protests, it's, it's a battleground in the city with constant weaponry and constant, you know, on the offensive from the police, tanks, bullets, gas, um, pellets, on and on, and then just fear, constantly and then the other side you we've got uh you know uh, leaf blowers and mom's arm and arm and people making shields and people buying gas masks what what does prolonged daily regular protest out in the streets and confronting that all the time do to someone coming back to the second season and my, my memory of like the, mem- you know, the body and the mind work, um, you know, by addition, right? Like maybe not the body, maybe it does. I don't know. Um, but the mind works in addition. Like what do you imagine is happening to folks who continuously are out in the streets over and over again, besides just body physical fatigue what is happening to folks' emotions and feelings? Um, what should folks be cautious about? Trauma, in, in a word. It, it depends. So, so I think you're right. Like, okay, so the pandemic and the movement happened. It feels like the pandemic amplified the movement, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. It, it was already in the works and this just kind of squeezed us into a corner. Mm-hmm. Where things become unbearable so people get much more active. Um, it, it also depends on how this plays out, right? Because if it plays out where a lot of people put a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice to move some pieces and they don't end up moving, mm-hmm. then we're going to have a whole generation that's probably traumatized, a la Vietnam. Mm. Right? One of the issues, at least in the veteran community that I I know of, and I don't know very much about that community because I haven't worked in it, is that they came back and felt disillusioned. They came back and felt like they had been sent to fight a war that they shouldn't have gone to fight. Mm -hmm. And that broke like so many people. And, And a lot of the trauma and the moral injury, as they call it in the community, is still felt and passed down through generations of veterans and whatnot. So I think how this actually ultimately plays out is crucial, Mm -hmm. right? There's a difference between making an effort and sacrifices for something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Immigrants usually have that experience, Mm -hmm. depending on whether it's actually better on the other side, right? Like we gave up all this stuff for, but at least we're here. Okay, we made it. Our kids are going to be better off a little bit. Um, versus if nothing changes. Well, that is kind of where we're at right now, right? Like, so, so what do we potentially do with generations of either families separated at the border and being sent back? Like, we, we are also hearing these stories, yeah. critical stories this last week. So end of July 2020, hearing stories about hospitals in the very small and beautiful country of El Salvador, 
on the brink of absolute collapse because there are so many Salvadorians who are positive for COVID-19 and struggling to survive. And how many folks contracted COVID-19 was because of massive deportations from the United States back to El Salvador, right? And so what, what does happen to, you know, generation and generation of folks because there's the real and then there's the imagined. So what if you just believe that nothing got accomplished? Maybe little things did, but not what you intended, not what you imagined, not what you dreamed and knew you needed. What, what does happen when that sort of, you know, moment uh, doesn't arrive? That trauma, what, what, what exactly is trauma? Because I hear it a lot. Yeah, it depends on who you ask. So I'm reading this book right now, which is fantastic, actually, uh, by, hold on, let me pronounce this properly, Rizma Menachem, who is a trauma therapist out of Missouri, Minneapolis, I believe, somewhere there. And he talks about how trauma is fully in the body that trauma is actually a response, a, a physiological body response to anything that overwhelms the system where it can not cope in the moment. I thought it was a very um, intuitive way to look at trauma. Um, and then, of course, trauma has all kinds of aspects. It's basically system overload, and it's system overload that lingers because, so his hypothesis is it lingers because it, in the moment where it happens, your body doesn't have the chance to fully process it. So then you have two types of responses. You have the people who are hypervigilant and constantly like on the lookout so that they don't repeat. And then you paradoxically have the people who constantly repeat almost as a way to complete the cycle. And so you see folks who have been traumatized in some way that kind of put themselves out into vulnerable positions all the time, um, where paradoxically they end up re-traumatized. But according to him, the body's intent is to complete that cycle. Um, so it's like Groundhog's Day. It's like you, you feel compelled to get it right. And so you just repeat it in a loop over and over again, seeking to get it right. Can you in that process get it right? Or is part of the trauma, you know, Groundhog Day that like you don't know how to get it right. You only know how to get it in this particular way. Right. I, th I think the latter. Right. So I think so in order to complete the trauma, to, to complete the processing of you need a completely different context. That's not a traumatic one. Right. You need a context that's safe, that's slow, that's loving or compassionate, that's holding that um, that provides safety. So the body essentially has a space to freak out and then like digest i speak of it as digesting right it's kind of like mm -hmm. the nasty big mac burger that just sits in your belly okay well it takes some time for your body to actually digest that i think trauma is the same way and it's little bits and pieces of physiological the thing i like about him is how much emphasis he puts on the body 
So, mm-hmm. so I think in the other thing that we know is that traumatic events also are inherited. So he's obviously a black therapist that works with uh, black trauma. And he talks about how inherited this is for, for this population in America. Now, how, how does one inherit it? I get that it's in, it's in the body. You know, a traumatic experience happens. Your body remembers it. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is kind of, you know, like to that end, speaking to that. So then how does that genetically then get passed on? Is it by how we behave and people see that behavior? Or does our DNA change? And therefore, from the moment that you were born, you are genetically inheriting the trauma of your parents. Yes, to both. Oh, my. And there's one of the more fascinating studies I've ever read was, I think, in Scientific American, where they basically showed that mice pups inherit the at the level of dna a sensitivity to a particular smell i think it was across five generations so one mouse smelled something really pungent and bad and And sad happened and then something bad happened so smell this thing with shock Okay, smell this thing, shock happens. And so then five generations after that mouse, when they smelled that same smell, they would like freak out and avoid it. Exactly. Wow. Okay, so question. Can, is trauma always negative? Um, In In other words, do people in power who do traumatic things to other people and cause harm to other people, do, do those bodies also, you know, genetically pass that on that you are more powerful than other people and this is the damage you can cause? I don't know that the people in power who cause damage see, see that they are causing damage. I think that's a perspective of a, of a recipient. So trauma is only remembered if it has a negative consequence, not if it has a positive consequence? In other words, can you have positive trauma? Can you purposefully, intentionally cause positive trauma? Yeah, but I don't think we call that trauma, right? What do we call that? When you're overloaded by a positive experience, right? So so if we think of trauma as system overload, um, we call that a trip. Right? Like if you're doing drugs and you're having an amazing hallucinogenic that's probably somewhat overwhelming and there's probably a little bit of anxiety in there, but generally people report that as a trip unless they had a bad trip, in which case they said it was traumatic. Yeah. See, you see what I'm saying? So I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out like what is from the same source, the positive version right. of trauma, I, I, don't, I think it's just the positive. We don't call that trauma. We call that a movement, right? So, let, so let's say, let's play it out. Let's say yeah. within COVID, one of the things that happens is that we do inch a little closer to some kind of social justice and adjust some things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Policy, whatever. Um, let's say this really pushes envelope on uh, climate science and we do something to fix, you know, the burning Amazon and now there's forest burning in Russia and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Let's say, 
So then what are we going to look back and say, right? You're playing perspectives. So then we have, let's say, we, we will have a story that tells us that the effort was worth it. Every day you got out into the street and protested and screamed and bullets and whatever, but we did something. It, okay, then we, it'll be, then the story will be like 2020, the year the world changed. Right. Will it be traumatic? I think it will have been traumatic, but it will have been worth it. And people do well. So on the flip side, resilience, people can do hard things for valued means or for valued ends. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually meaningful lives are usually determined by that. Right. Um, Victor Frankl chose to stay and tend to his patients in the concentration camps by choice. Right. Men's search for meaning. Um, is his book on logotherapy that he came up with out of that experience mm-hmm. and around how he ended up making that choice because then he could contribute something to humanity. So resilience, I think, happens out of validated trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even if, if we can tell, like, so I read an interesting study years ago, and I can't remember where, about how the Buddhist population um, that has witnessed enormous amounts of trauma with occupation and, you know, their houses being burnt to the ground and all of the nasty stuff that happened. And yet, when you look at measures of PTSD, they have very low levels of PTSD, which is fascinating. Why? Because there is no doubt to anybody, any amongst them, that what they experienced was a traumatic event. So there's this funny relationship between trauma and the validity of the event. And I think that's the, that's the, the at least a critical turning point for the vets we were talking about, right? You go to war, you do heinous things and all of that. It's okay. You can live with it if it's consistent, like you felt like you contributed, you did, it was in the service of something important. It's the other, like, so it depends. I don't know. It'll depend on what actually changes or not. Well, what I'm learning from you is that it depends on what actually changes and it depends on what we communicate has actually changed. So now it's a war of words and how we frame the stories and the larger narrative of this time. Right. So the, the ability to create stories and drive, create or change a particular narrative then becomes so incredibly important, not just for how it is remembered historically, but for how it is remembered individually by communities, because that then changes how these events are remembered in the body and therefore passed on to different generations that we are resilient, that we will overcome, 
or that we are going to constantly be oppressed and that we will never reach a particular moment of justice or feeling like things are actually in any way, shape or form equitable. So we have many options, but the options are kind of, you know, driven by who is actually determining what this story and these stories are and what that's going to look and therefore feel like. I'm wondering if you could share with us, we're using these phrases and oftentimes I hear or learn about them in such a way where it's hard to understand their relationship to one another and their distinction from one another. So we're talking about trauma and then you mentioned, you know, PTSD. So and, and you mentioned this particular moment where you said, you know, they all, this group all shared a traumatic experience, but the PTSD about it was low. So what is the difference between trauma and PTSD and what is their relationship to one another? I think trauma is, if I go with this definition about the embodied trauma, is the system overload to whatever event. And the event can be invisible to others, by the way, right? Like, I do think that in my world, we talk about microaggressions. They're those little signs and symbols and things that communicate to you that you are inferior then in some way. And one of the main places that I, I'm, I don't know, I'm hearing it of late is when mm-hmm. I have friends and colleagues who talk about how they're going to let other people do stuff. So I had somebody who said, you know, I'm going to let these, this diverse group tell us what they need. That stood out to me. That they are giving us permission. Right. <laughs> exactly. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't hear it. Like it's not even ill-intended. And you know, this is, this came out of the mouth of, of a woman who's like super sweet. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so trauma could be any, so if that, if you have a long history of that, you're going yeah. to react to that and your system is going to be overwhelmed and overloaded. Okay. The PT, so, so trauma is the system overload um, at the level of cognition, body, whatever, what, mm-hmm. right? System. PTSD is the amount of um, reactivity so things like, and it's how we measured it. It's, it's reflective of a measure. And the measure for PTSD has these two sections. One is reactivity and intrusion, right? So people have memories, what we call flashbacks, mm-hmm. um, startle responses that you can't help, like uh, women, particularly in abusive um, domestic relationships, will often jump anytime somebody comes to touch them from behind or something like people don't like other people being behind them. Right. That startle response. Um, so it's these small intrusive experiences that one has as a, as a result of the trauma. The other one, the other part of that, um, assessment and I guess that coin is avoidance. So to what extent do you avoid things that are associated or um, linked in some way to the traumatic event? That's PTSD. 
and at least amongst the Buddhist population, what we saw was because nobody doubts that this horrible thing happened, they don't have that part. The startle response, the intrusion, it may also have something to do with the amount of mindfulness. Like there are studies on Buddhist monks that show that they can mindfulness their way to suppress the startle reflex. Oh yes, I, I was I was watching this uh, show about the brain and the body and the mind, and I think it was called The Mind Explained on Netflix. That was not an intentional plug, um, and uh, and they they had these Buddhist monks who were basically showing um, how using mindfulness, being aware, and really checking in and knowing what's happening with how your body is responding, including your mind that they were able to basically like be set on fire and have no, no response at all. In fact, there is a famous protest speaking about Vietnam and the Vietnam war. There's a famous protest, an image of a Buddhist monk in Vietnam setting themselves on fire. And there was not a single physical response that that monk had as they were protesting in the form of suicide. Um, and, and sort of using that example as how intensely mindfulness can have an impact on how someone does or doesn't physically respond um, to a particular moment. Um, thank you for, for sharing that distinction. You mentioned that in this book that you were reading, that part of the uh, definition and explanation of trauma was that you don't have the coping skills or mechanisms, right? So is it possible to anticipate trauma in one's life and therefore then practice and get into developing coping skills for any particular thing that might happen in one's life so that you can sort of come out the other side of a traumatic experience and maybe even go through it without as much trauma as someone or your version of self that didn't have those same kind of coping skills. In other words, can we train for trauma? Yeah. Can we, can we, uh, yeah. Prep ourselves for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you be trauma, trauma preppers? I, I, I think so. I also think that we're prepping so that it doesn't knock the wind out of our sails to the same extent. Right. So the bar is relative to who you are. Hmm. I don't, because we don't, mostly because we don't have the Buddhist society, right? Like if right. that is the preparation. And the two things that, interestingly, that I think would buffer and would be the best preparation is three things. Contextualizing, always remembering that stuff happens in a context. We're very, because we're verbal, we're, and particularly for women, we, we always assume it's our fault. No, right? So I saw a funny meme the other day um, about, wait, wait, what was that? Uh, the Corona Coaster. The Corona Coaster? Yes. So it's the roller coaster that we go through during this pandemic, which totally fit. And it was a funny thing, right? It said, one day you wake up and you go to work and everything's fine because it's all the same and everything's kind of familiar by now. And you're having a fine day and you go about your business and nothing is wrong. 
And the next day you wake up and you start crying because the world is coming to an end. And, you know, in day three, you get up in the morning and your first the drink is a shot of gin. And the <laughs> next day, everything is fine again. <laughs> and we keep going through these crazy up and downs. Mm-hmm. The Corona coaster. So when you're having the terrible day, remember that it's because of the pandemic, not because of you. Mm. It's everything, right? You know, I'm a little wacky. I'm not that wacky. So when I wake up raging <laughs> for what mm-hmm. I remember, oh yeah, right, wait, pandemic, Black Lives Matter or whatever, social justice movements, whatever, bombs in the street, kids getting put in, right? Like I have to recontextualize to remember that my response is actually super valid. So if people are having the Corona coaster as their lives or are currently right now feeling a heavy, heavy amount of grief or despair or anxiety, that this is contextual and to remember that, our bodies are also remembering this. And so how, how do we, you know, so I, I'm realizing as, as we're talking, like we are in the midst of creating social, socialized and global trauma. This isn't something that we are not going to be able to remember, except for to the beginning, we're all having different experiences of this. And so I guess I want to go here to these differences as well. Like what do our ages do to sort of like also give context to these differences, right? There are things that happened to me um, and my family when I was a child and I don't remember it, but there are also some things that I do that I have no idea why I do them. And then when I maybe talk to my siblings who were who are older than me, they're like, oh, well, you probably do that because of blah, blah, blah. Like there are moments where I don't remember the details because I was too young and yet I'm still influenced by them. So to that point, what are happening? What kinds of things are potentially the traumatic things happening to younger people, right? Like people who are four, seven, Versus people who are right now 76, 74, right? Like what can you imagine or, or anticipate are going to be some of the different ways in which we grow up or out of this moment? Um, is it the startle reflex? Is it like, for example, my mom has the most well-packed garage with so many extra things. And her, her thing all the time growing up was, well, you never know. You never know. And we would ask her, like, what is this you never know? You never know what? She's like, well, my parents, you know, were full-fledged adults with children to feed during the Great Depression. And so in my house, we always had to have extras or we always had to creatively think of how we could use very little access to food and feed so many people with it, right? So my mom's constantly feeling like we need to have what we need and extra just in case that got passed on to me. So I have extra of abundance, right? So like, what are some of the things that you can imagine this time, depending on different age groups and levels that people might carry on with them and maybe know or have an unexplainable thing? I don't know. I think that would be an empirical question, ultimately. Partly because, you know, I can generalize and say kids will need much more validation because they don't have the experience. 
right? So mm. whereas older adults, it either pulls for, they have much more perspective. So that, that was the other thing I was going to say. So, okay, let me back up. For the previous point, pain plus acceptance equals pain. <laughs> Sorry. Plus non-acceptance equals trauma. I see now where this is going. I, I wish I wouldn't have laughed and let you finish because I was like, <laughs> what kind of math is this? This is the kind of math that I do. And, and it didn't get very far. You know, like I'm a, I struggle with math. So pain, pain plus acceptance equals pain. I'm like, well, yeah. So, okay. But pain plus non-acceptance equals trauma. And suffering. Which is Ex- why Acceptance of what? Of the fact that the situation is shitty like it is. Hmm. It's the resistance to the, no, we're, oh, it's not the, it's not COVID. It's just the flu. Or that's not racism. That's just because you didn't want to follow what the police were telling you to do. If you just followed what they would tell you to do. So that's where, okay, okay, got it, got it, got it. That's why the contextualizing and validating is, is what I think one of the key ingredients. So different people will have different capacities to do that based on their experience. I don't know. Uh, I, I imagine there's some kind of correlation with age right? Because older folks having had more experiences can better validate, right? So my mother once in a while will say, oh yeah, the world is in a really terrible place. It's been here before and we got through it. On a different day, she says, yes, this is exactly like communism in Ceausescu and run for the hills. Because it doesn't matter who's in charge, you know, when people are hungry and greedy and whatever, it's going to be a nightmare. So, right, in, in the second version, she loses the, the difference in details. The contest mm. is not quite the same. Mm. Okay. So the other piece that I think is crucial as a buffer is perspective taking. Take some time and try to put yourself or yourselves or people out there in the shoes of different folks. What's it like to be the millionaire? Right? Live in a, I don't know, closed camp, sort of. I don't know. I feel like, you know, millionaires live on these estates with their gates and whatever. What's it like to be a homeless person on the street? What's it like to be the average school teacher? What's it like to be a new immigrant? You want to make it worse, crank it up from a Muslim country. Right? Because we're in America. If we went to Europe, I would probably say some other... You know, it makes a difference. But, but stopping and trying to take the perspective of somebody else will help, first of all, obviously, with the validation. And it, it increases our humanity and our empathy. What if you refuse to do that? 
then it's relative to your history. And you will deduce from this whatever story you will deduce from this. And some of it will have monsters and others not. And it increases. We do know that there is a relationship between perspective taking or lack thereof and selfishness. Ooh. Which is I think I'm I think I'm on the corona coaster. Give me a minute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm cognizant of the fact that while we're all having uh, very individualized and different experiences right now. We're also having different experiences based on the community. So we're having different communal experiences, different state experiences, right? Like what's happening in California is different than what's happening in Nevada, New York, Wisconsin, um, you know, uh, North Carolina, Maine, and so on. And also, you know, right now it's the summer in the United States. It's not the summer in terms of climate in South Africa and in South Africa, they're also having a huge outbreak like we are here in the United States. And so I'm wondering right now it is the summer. It is warm. It is sunny. It is for many parts of the day conducive to be outside, yep. but we're also towards the end of summer which means we're having thunderstorms and rain and, you know, hurricanes and things on, on the, on the horizon. And after that, we will then have the winter again, which takes us almost to the point of where this started in terms of the COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Are you able to share any insight on how, the seasons also impact or affect our mental clarity or mental acuity to different things. Speaking of the the coping skills, right? Like wanting to make sure that folks have as much in their arsenal of I can get through life, regardless of the pandemic being here or not, like life will give us pandemic like moments on our own. And so I'm wondering, like, what, what, what could we be doing right now in preparation for what we're not going to be able to do um, very shortly? Should we be outside? What's the benefit of the sun? Oh, yeah. I mean, if nothing else, the D12, is it? The vitamin? I don't know. Isn't it vitamin D? I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. Vitamin D, I think, yeah. is what it is. Go get sun because... Depending on where you are. I mean, you know, I grew up in Canada. So in the winter, we went up north. I think we could still be outside. Obviously, a lot of the dining and all, like, think of all the outside activities um, that are still okay. Okay, we can't go to big concerts, but most places have shut down their main, the whatever town's main drag and put tables so people can still dine outside. That's Mm -hmm. probably going to go away. Um, Getting outside, I mean, it's taking care of your physical and emotional psych body, right? Get outside, get exercise, try to eat somewhat healthy, right? I'm not 
Um, you know, if I can encourage people, I've, I'm reading much more about um, our eating red meat. Like if you can let go of some of the red meat, it's probably a good idea, both for your body and for the environment. Um, make sure you walk. I think the original recommendation is 20 minutes per day. Mm -hmm. I would crank it up to an hour, right? Just go for a walk every day for an hour whatever and prioritize that now depending on who you are it's going to be a lot easier a lot harder right because if you right. have five kids at home and you have to homeschool them and still be on zoom meetings yeah you're not walking anywhere and i'm imagining that that also includes the you know adaptive way of walking uh for folks who are not um you know folks who are disabled um disabled people who um, walking is, is hard to do, right? So however you need to um, have assistance in yeah. being outside and moving as much in any part of your body um, as much as possible is, is the encouragement, right? Why? Move your body. What is, the, what is the benefit of moving your body? Well, amongst the elderly population, we say if... If you don't use it, you lose it, <laughs> right? What, one of the number one factors that leads to elderly struggles is disuse. Disuse? Disuse. We stop using, we stop calculating math because now I have a tool for it that's attached to my hip. We, we stop remembering phone numbers. Right? Like, do you even know your wife's phone number by heart? Yes, I do. I'd say it, but then people would call her. But no. so, but yes, I, I do know it. But only because right. <laughs> one time I didn't have my cell phone and I was like, oh my God, how do I tell her to come get me when the phone is in the car? And I had to go to this, this rare item called a pay phone. That's P-A-Y-P-H-O-N-E. And I had to have change on me. Not money, not a credit card. I couldn't use Apple Pay. I had to have hard change. I believe 35 cents. No, I think it was 75. Anyway, I needed to have change to put into this thing called a pay phone to then call her. And I had to know her, her number and, and I didn't. And um, so then I was really, um, this is her calling me now, and I was really uh, in a bad place because I couldn't call her. And um, thankfully, we found each other. And um, then I decided there are many things I need to memorize. Um, I know her social, I know her birthday, and I know her telephone number. But I also now know all those things because of so many medical forms that I have to fill out. And since I'm on her insurance, and she's the primary insurance or insured person, I constantly have to write those things down. So yes, had I not had those incidents, I would not know any of these things. Yeah. And practicing that, I mean, there are apps for this to keep your brain active and it's the same thing for your body. We also know that like physical exercise helps with dopamine um, and serotonin levels and it gives you it makes us happier. Um, we can expect the same, um, what is it, the SAD 
the seasonal affective disorder impact, right? You're going to be spending a lot more time at home during uh, the winter because... Wait, that's an acronym? SAD is an acronym for seasonal... Affective disorder. Meaning that when the seasons change, you have an emotional change as well? You get the serious blues. It's kind of a... It's a depressive episode associated with seasonal change. And people get buy those lamps and and ironically the treatment is intense light yeah i could see it outside what do you know about negative ions not very much you know this idea (laughs) that if you are around moving water that moving water produces negative ions and that we as humans produce so many positive ions that when we are around a lot of moving water, we tend to feel better um, because it's more of a, a, of a magnetic, if you will, balance. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the sad seasonal thing. I've been very close to buying a lamp, but I also don't really like light. Um, I don't know. I have a weird reaction to light. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. But what I know I like, regardless, is moving water. Not so much rain, because that's a barometer change. It kind of messes with my arthritis. But being around moving water, and the big bonus is being in moving water, then, then it's intense, right? So I'm wondering, if you said you don't know much about negative ions, do you know much about water, moving water, the effects of moving water, nothing? No, I do know that humans do better in nature. That, oh, that so it doesn't even have to be moving water. It's so, I imagine, you know, we each have, so you have water, I have mountains. I've, I've oh, learned God. living in Reno. No, mountains do nothing for me. <laughs> mountains, mountains are tra- traumatic for me because I can't walk very easily without having constant pain. So anything with an incline, like I imagine that you're thinking about mountains as in real mountains that you see. If there's a slight incline in the sidewalk, I'm like, that's a mountain. Like, you know, like so, so an actual mountain right. is very disturbing for me. I'm like, that's it. Take me back to the car. It's just, it's an impossible. Like I, maybe that's PTSD and I'm avoiding it. I'm like, nope, not going to happen. So um, yes, mine is, mine is water. So nature, got it. Which sure. would explain a lot of why people are, are gone camping. Uh, every weekend right now as much as they can. Okay, we are close to the end of our time. And to the question I have been asking everyone else in this season, I want to ask it of you as well. Um, You and I have never spoken in these seasons, really getting to know you Sandra and your life and, and, and more than what you share with us. Um, but mostly it's been from your perspective as a, um, as a medical professional, as a psychiatrist, psychologist, which one is it? Psychologist. And um, so keeping in that perspective, if something were to be made by you or others, right? Like thinking about that book, right, that you mentioned that this therapist wrote with their patient. If you were to write something, uh, it could be for a medical journal. Hell, it could be a book of your own. Um, Whatever it is that you can imagine you would make or be interested in contributing to, what would that thing be that 
looks at this moment from your experience to really sort of give insight in the future to what this moment was like? What would that be? What would it be named or called? And if you could describe to us what it would be about or what it would entail. So if it was a movie, what would the name of the movie be? And describe maybe the movie poster that sort of gives you an impression of what this film is going to be like. But if it's more of a a practice or a book, maybe give us some insight or detail as to what it might cover in terms of content. Does it have to be a writing? Can it be? No, not at all. Okay. Could be anything. I'm debating. I have two objects. Oh. So I think the first one, so see if I'm having an ESL moment here. Is it a kaleidoscope? (laughs) A kaleidoscope. Yes, it's a kaleidoscope. Uh Uh-huh. So I'd leave one of those because Uh it has different perspectives as things change. Uh Uh-huh right? And you shift it around and the rocks fall in different places. Would it just be different colors or would it be particular shapes? And what colors would it be? What colors do you feel this moment is evoking or creating? I don't know. Are there social justice colors? The only well, thing is the we've blue. been talking a lot about Black Lives Matter, so I'm assuming that maybe the color black is in it. I think, I, yeah, I think it would just be black and white. Hmm. Right. So I think I would leave that just to hint at perspective taking and that mm-hmm. thing constantly change. Mm-hmm. And the other object would be a compass. Hmm. Think about direction. Think about intention. Think about why you're going wherever you're going. Why are you doing what you're doing? What's your point? Would you give the kaleidoscope and or the compass a particular name? I get that they're a kaleidoscope and I get that they're a compass, but would you call them something? The blank kaleidoscope, the blank compass. I would make a box with a glass and <laughs> says break glass during pandemic. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> during next pandemic, break glass. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Do are you are you foreshadowing that you imagine that these will continue? Because the idea that like this is the last one, we keep referring to the Spanish flu as the one before this. So you're imagining also with these two objects that this will happen again. I think we're at the beginning and we've been at this beginning for a while. This is just again, it's kind of like the social justice movement. It's a it's a different peak. Um, but we have had increasing number of fires. We've had uh, icebergs that are melting. There, there are planetary environmental movements that have been happening for at least the, that are no, super noticeable for the last 10 years. Yeah, no, this is, this is the first real slap. Um, it's funny because people also think like, okay, so in behavioral health, people often come in and say, you know, I've been doing this thing for years. I want you to help me figure out why. Okay. But can we also talk about how much longer you're going to do this thing? And then when I say that, people are always surprised because in our minds, we think like, and I've certainly had this experience with smoking, right? I've smoked Mm -hmm. a really long time. Ah, I'll quit tomorrow. Yeah, but I've been saying that I'm going to quit tomorrow for the last 10 years. 
That's so a the, little bit of time. Right? So the chances that I'm actually going to quit, like what makes me think tomorrow is different. So let's talk about what that looks like and anticipate for it. Let's, let's plan for it happening again. So yes, I think we're at the beginning of a really messed up new normal. <laughs> and on that note, we're <laughs> uh, we are we are potentially more prepared uh for that moment now uh and hopefully if we get this right um with some validation and some contextualization and some willingness to look into different perspectives and to pass that on to future generations maybe just maybe um they will be more prepared than we are. And shout out and thank you to our ancestors who tried to do that as best they could so that we can claim victory to where we are now because of the seeds that were sown before. So, um, you know, passing, passing on the good is as much as possible. Uh, I, I'm trying to take away as the lesson here in preparation for just more of the same, but hopefully not more of the same in terms of how we um, respond to one another. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.